0: Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our conversation about the census with Professor Margo Anderson from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Coming up, we pick up where we left off with our discussion about counting methodologies in the census, the requirement of confidentiality, and the formula used to apportion representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. We hope you enjoy this episode. We now return to our conversation. (laughs) You know, one of the most fascinating things about this to me, uh, the, the history of the census was the counting methodologies that they implemented over the course of the years that the census has been around. And so, you know, they used to use heads of family counts. They used estimations by locals to try to get a better idea for remote counties and remote towns and things like that. But professor, could you tell us about some of the history's evolution of the counting methodologies that the Census Bureau has used over the years?
1: Okay. Well, There's some continuity. One continuity is it's always been done by household. In other words, if you look at cartoons or paintings or iconography of the census, say in the 19th century, it looks very similar to today. What you see is a census taker standing at the door on the doorstep or in somebody's living room or sitting in the living room with a form, filling out the form. And now we do that. Starting in 1970, we shifted to the mail census. So the Postal Service by that time had a decent enough, what they call delivery sequence file, that a fairly substantial portion, not all not all of it, of the population could get the form in, in the mail. And then an enumerator, if they filled it out, the enumerator didn't have to come. You know, slowly that technology has expanded, you know, with mail and phone. And of course, now with the internet option, which is really the big innovation for 2020, which is, you know, you go online and fill it out. There were small experiments to do that in the last 20 years, but this is the biggie. Um, and it required massive technological innovation sort of on the back end because you had to have a computer system set up with enough bandwidth and strength to have, say, 40 million people trying to answer at once. And it looks like it worked. Other countries that have been moving in this direction have had problems with crashing systems. Uh, Australia, I think, in 2016. Um, the U.S.'s system went. looks like it went pretty well. Yeah, I think give
0: them some credit. You know, they said it would take 10 minutes to fill out. I think I fill it out in less than eight. So it was definitely the easy yeah, way to yeah, go yeah. for me. 10
1: questions in 10 minutes is the slogan that they use. Uh, until 2000, through the 2000 census, there were actually two forms, uh, what they called a short form, which is what we have now, and a long form. So some sample of the population, so roughly 16, 18 percent would get a long form questionnaire. And that's really long. It takes like an hour to do. Oh, wow. That's now been shifted to what was called the American Community Survey, which is a rolling sample survey that sort of rolls around the country and is in the field with professional data collectors all the time. And, you know, and also an internet option. So we get essentially up to date sample population information off of that Survey frequently, the old long form only gave you data once every 10 years.
0: Confidentiality. So, confidentiality is very important when doing the census survey. And so, as I understand it from my research, that there's some information that they'll release right away and other information they'll keep under lock and key for a period of time. So, Professor, can you illustrate the confidentiality and how that's enforced when the government goes about doing the census?
1: Well, again, the census takers have to swear to not tell anybody about the information they're collected, and they're subject to quite stiff fines and prosecution if they go home and say, I was over at the Jones household the other day and I found out X. That is also true of the office staff of the census. And what is called the confidentiality pledge that shows up on the form says, look, we will never publish anything that will allow anybody to figure out your particular answers. In other words, we only publish aggregate information, not individual level information, with one exception, which is 72 years after the census is taken, the raw answers are shipped over to the National Archives, originally in paper, but now as a kind of electronic file, And those, or microfilm and electronic file, and then they become public documents available for genealogical purposes or for any other research use. And so the latest census that is so available is 1940. In two years, in 2022, you will be able to see the results uh, and how people answered the 1950 census, and, you know, on and on and on. And that restriction the lifting that restriction of total confidentiality was done basically because people wanted to see it and also in the 19th century there was no understanding of confidentiality as we know it today so in fact in some years the the census results were actually posted locally not you know nationally but locally say in your local courthouse to see that it was there an early check on accuracy right? so you could go in and say oh yeah there I am you know, they got my household.
0: Why do they pick 72 years? It just seems like such an odd number to uh, put records under right. lock and key.
1: It is an odd number. And the the decision actually is more administrative than it is theoretical. Uh, the, the United States, amazingly enough, never created a national archives, historical archives, until the 1930s. Um, and the big building that's on the National Mall in Washington opened in the 1930s. And up until then, all the census schedules, the paper, was actually under the control of the Census Bureau. And they shuffled it around the, you know, Washington for 120 or 30 years. The 1890 census forms burned in a, in a fire in the early 1920s. And that was one of the recognition that, ooh, we really do need to take better care of this stuff. So the there was negotiation in the late 30s and 1940s between the National Archives and the Census Bureau. And it turned out that the 1870 census was sort of turned over to public use during World War II. And that's where the, the 72-year rule came. And in the 1950s, when the 1880 census Came up the question came up. They said, "Yeah, okay, that was good. Let's use that. This, let's use seventy-two years." And there's a kind of memorandum of agreement between the archivists of the U.S. and the Census Director.
0: I think you uh, overruled what I saw on Wikipedia. There was some indication that the seventy-two year was picked because it was just over uh, the life expectancy for the average woman in the United States.
1: Yeah, and there was certainly discussion of that. But if you look at the primary documents of, you know, who was talking to whom and how they decided it. It had a great deal more to do from my reading of those documents to the administrative concerns in the Census Bureau. Like, do we have to keep all this paper? Right? In other words, we're, you know, our job is to take the census going forward. Somebody else should be the curator of the past. And that's what they did.
0: Okay, well, let's transition into what we use this information for. So obviously, a lot of work, a lot of, uh, a lot of investment, a lot of time and energy is put into tabulating these results. And so what does the United States use this information for?
1: Okay, the original function, which is apportionment and, and tax policy, continued. I mean, we disconnected the census from tax policy with the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, mostly so we could put in an income tax. But we're still doing that. In other words, you know, starting with the very first census, we take every 10 years, we redistribute political power among congressional seats, state legislatures, all the way down to the local government level, based on census numbers. We use it for redistricting, in other words, the geographic carving up of the, the places that a representative will represent, we use it for what is called funds allocation. So there are lots of federal laws um, in the billions of billions of dollars that have formulas in them that say, if we're going to build roads in a local area, let's use a population density number to see whether this particular state qualifies for federal aid, for example. So, there's lots, so that's another usage. And finally, of course, there's the research users, the historians, sociologists, demographers, public health community that uses all these numbers, particularly as what they call denominators. In other words, if you need to understand a death rate or a birth rate, you need to know what the population at risk is, in other words. And that's, those numbers come out of the census.
0: Let's dig in a little deeper on that apportionment of the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, those seats that are allocated or reallocated, I guess, uh, on a frequency roughly every 10 years after the census. And so what is that formula like? How is that calculated based on what they find in the census?
1: Okay. Uh, Amazingly enough, the Congress actually has changed the apportionment formula several times over the course of the history of the country.
0: What? Politicians Uh, do that?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Right. Um, We now use a formula called equal proportions, and it was put in place in 1940 after a lot of, you know, fuss and bother and argument among members of Congress and mathematicians. And we take 50 numbers, in other words, the population total for each state, plug it into that apportionment formula, and out comes a Allocation of seats. Now, the tricky problem for congressional apportionment or any legislative apportionment is what do they call fractions? So, if you're allocated, you know, if if that division, if you will, gives you two point five seats, right? Do you get two or three? Right, oh, and that's what's over. Uh, do you? Truncate the fractions, do you round up, round down, and so forth. And so what we now use is one that gives a state an additional seat if the fraction is greater than the square root of two.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, wow that uh, yeah. that's getting a little complicated.
1: Yes, it does, right.
0: Well, last question for you, Professor. And so uh, as you mentioned, you know, COVID-19, you know, there was people moving around and there's probably going to be some changes in populations, especially, and I've heard a lot of stories about people moving out of densely populated big city areas because, you know, they can't access the grocery store, you know, uh, readily, or they can't get access to the car, kind of thinking about New York here. And, uh, you know, so they've moved and they've moved, they set up lives elsewhere. And so that would have been about the time that the census count started to kick in. So let's say in theory that there's been a significant population change uh, from state to state. And it looks like, uh, according to that formula, there will be some uh, change-ups in, I guess, the representation across the different states in the U.S. House of Representatives. What's the timeline for making those changes before another election?
1: Again, the statute that governs reapportionment right now mandates what is called an automatic process. In other words, there was a controversy in the 1920s where Congress, for the only decade in the history of the country, didn't reapportion. So we actually used the 1910 reapportionment until 1932. That was a problem. (laughs) So they, in 29, they said, look, you know, here's the formula. Just take the 50 numbers, plug it in, and unless Congress acts, it just automatically goes into effect in the year two. So that's the current system. So if the Bureau puts out the numbers by the end of the year, in some ways nothing needs to happen. The issue, though, is that the Constitution gives the authority over apportionment policy to Congress. In other words, the last section of Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3 says that the census shall be taken in such manner as they shall by law direct. Now, if Congress gets those numbers and is unhappy with them, then it's up to the political branches to sort of figure out what to do, whether to say, look, we did the best we can, let's just move forward, or to, in some ways, introduce affirmative legislation on a variety of issues. Let's slow it down. Let's do some evaluation of the data. Let's change the apportionment the formula. You know, any all sorts of things are possible at that point. And frankly, because we're where we are in the counting process, we on, honestly don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, that's why people like me, you know, stay glued to the news about how the count itself is going, and why the, the flip-flopping by the Trump administration, first extending deadlines, then putting them back the way they were, caused such heartburn among the data people because they didn't have a clear sort of operational sense of how to manage this process. So all of that's quite open right now, and um, it will be under discussion for the next two months, if not longer.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor. It was terrific having you on. Good. And thank you, listeners, for being here without you. There's no show and that's no fun. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe directly to the show in your favorite podcasting app or apps. Also, we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com. And I got a few hat tips out there. I want to thank Dan Mangan from CNBC, John Crisell from The Hill, Clark Merrifield from the Journalist Resources, and once again, another thank you to Jacqueline Thompson from Law.com and also Wikipedia. Thank you to all the people that maintain that resource, really frames issue nicely and before people start throwing tomatoes i want to thank my producer molly mcdonough and the ltn team for making us sound fantastic yes that's a word i looked it up fantastic this has been legal talk today i'm lawrence coletti have a great day everybody